Hey, Bill. Thanks for coming on. We are now just two days past the election. If you had three basic takeaways from the election, what would they be? Racism and revanchism are central to understanding Trump and his base. That this was an election that where the Trump vote voted quite explicitly to reject reality. And the third thing was that the turnout was marvelous. And despite the incredible voter suppression that we have been experiencing and that Greg Palast has written about in the efforts by the Republicans to undermine democracy. Those would be the three main things that I would highlight. Hi, I'm Stephen Pitts, the host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Thanks for joining me on this first episode. For the past 20 years, I have been blessed to have worked with a phenomenal crew on various racial and economic justice issues. While centered around people at my day job at the UC Berkeley Labor Center, my crew includes a wide variety of people in the trenches fighting for social justice. People around the country organizing Black worker centers, staff and nonprofits changing the rules of local economic development, returning citizens fighting for dignity and better lives for the former incarcerated, union members battling for decent lives on the job. I have been inspired to see Black unionists say, I am union, but I'm also Black. And I refuse to allow the labor movement to ignore my Blackness. I've been more hopeful to see non-Black folks in a variety of organizations struggle to understand how structural racism permeates their groups in uneven ways, try to transform their work. I retired on July 1, but this podcast is one way I will stay engaged. Here at Black Work Talk, we will look at an often ignored part of our movements for racial and economic justice, the efforts to organize Black workers who are impacted by race and class. We will talk with a wide range of people who deal with issues of Black workers from different perspectives. The overarching theme connecting these conversations is how to build the power of Black workers as part of a forging of a progressive governing majority in the United States. So happy that my first guest is my dear friend, Bill Fletcher, longtime racial justice and labor activist. We are talking just two days after the election, and we will get Bill's take on that election. The implications for forging a sustained movement and what this new context means for building Black worker power. Bill's done so many things during his decades of service to our movement. He's been education director at both SCIU and the AFL-CIO. He was president of Trans-Africa Forum. He's a prolific writer on a wide variety of topics dealing with racism, capitalism, socialism, and movement building. He is a consultant for groups in the United States and throughout the world. And somehow Bill found time to write a mystery novel and is currently working on his sequel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Please subscribe to Black Work Talk wherever you find your podcasts. Follow us at Twitter and Facebook and at Organizing Upgrade. And support us at Patreon by becoming a monthly sustainer. Every episode, we will strive to improve the quality of the production and the depth of the content. But this takes resources. Without your support, we can only go so far. Please contribute what you can to this effort. Hey, Bill. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this. Steve, it is great. I'm really proud of you. This is wonderful. I'm excited. Uh, and I'm looking forward to your future guests. Say, Bill, got a question for you, man. How did you survive election night? By watching Star Trek Discovery. That's a new one, right? Yeah, that's a new one, which is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. See, as, I, as you may or may not remember, I don't do elections very well at all. Um, I get much too anxious, no matter what the pollsters say one way or the other. I'm very anxious. So I don't watch the election returns. Um, and, you know, in the past, before, you know, pre-pandemic, I, I might have been doing some poll work or something like that. But uh, I stayed home and I watched Star Trek. I watched uh, Chopped. Um, and then I went to sleep or tried to go to sleep, and it was horrible. I couldn't sleep, uh, woke up early. And then as soon as I heard the news, what always happens to me happened again, which is that I just calmed down. And it's not because of what I hear. It's that, okay, now let's rock and roll. The battle has started. That's the way I look at it. My strategy was to get some donuts and identify some Law & Order episodes 
and I vegged out on donuts and law and order all night long. That was good enough. But we are now just two days past the election. If you had three basic takeaways from the election, what would they be? Um, that racism and revanchism um, are central to understanding Trump and his base. That um, that this was an election that where the Trump uh, vote voted quite explicitly to reject reality. Um, and the third thing was that it, the turnout was marvelous. And despite the incredible voter suppression that we have been experiencing and that Greg Palast has written about uh, in, in the efforts by the Republicans to undermine democracy. Those would be the three main things that I would highlight. So Bill, real quickly, how do you define revanchism? Revanchism is the politics of revenge. It's the politics of asserting that one is fighting to get back what they believe was illegitimately taken from them. It's a term that was associated with post-World War I Germany, post-World War II Germany uh, as well. And in this case, I'm saying that there's a right-wing populist movement that is furious about the changes that took place in the 20th century. Uh, they're furious about the changes in terms of racial dynamics, gender dynamics, the U.S. role in the world. And so for them, when they're talking about make America great again, what they are looking for is a return to the 1950s. And so the politics of revanchism, very, very central to, uh, to, to what we see. Um, and, and, you know, you add on to that a armed right-wing movement, or at least an armed wing of a right-wing movement that makes this especially dangerous. Bill, question, man. Um, when I look at kind of the election results since, say, 2000, I see sort of a steady, constant split between the numbers that the Dems get at the presidential level and those that the GOP gets, okay? Mm-hmm. Correct. When you talk about revanchism, revanchism kind of emanating the, the, the vote that took place a couple of days ago, do you see the same thing back in 2000 or see it different? You know, today, uh, Candace and I went for a walk. And the metaphor she used, which I think is very appropriate, is that Trump is the rattler on the tail of the snake, and that the snake became very apparent with Goldwater, with uh, Nixon's Southern strategy, with Reagan uh, beginning his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, with uh, George H.W. Bush, with the uh, Willie Horton, uh, with the Newt Gingrich contract with America, so-called. In other words, Steve, I think speaking directly to your point that we've been seeing a trend that has been part of the so-called backlash to the progressive movements of the 1960s and that the appearance of Trump is simply the rattler. It's not the snake. Um, that this right-wing populist movement, however, is not just an electoral uh, phenomena. We're talking about an entire worldview that is has started to cohere. And that's what I meant, Steve, by the rejection of reality. How can you have millions of people that deny the deadly nature of COVID-19? You know, you know I, I call most of Trump's base zombies. And I call them that, Steve, because in my study of zombies and zombieism, one of the things that I have discovered is that once you become a zombie, you can't return to humanity. And, and what you see among his base is this loss of their humanity, their loss of their empathy. It's not simply that they're voting in a bad way. It's part of a total package that's happening. So the repudiation of science and the notion that there is this pandemic that has killed 250,000 people, killing more each day, 
Millions are getting ill and the people would deny it. So I think that there's a test. There's a test that I use. I call it the zombie test. And you basically ask people three questions. One was, what do you make of the fact that Trump disparaged veterans and deceased U.S. servicemen and women? The second thing is, what do you make of the fact that Trump was caught openly lying about the COVID pandemic, knowing full well and stating quite clearly that he understood the, the depth of the problem? And finally, what do you make of the, that this man may owe somewhere around $400 million and nobody seems to know to whom he owes the money? Now, if, if, if you find that people start defending him, then you realize you're dealing with a zombie. These are people that are out of touch with reality. And, and I think while there have always been people in the United States out of touch with reality, the John Birch Society, the Klan, et cetera, um, and that that's not new, what is new is how mainstreamed it has become. I guess I raised a question about, you know, this was happening right now in 2020, going back to 2000, and you raised a good point in terms of kind of the, some roots going back to Reagan and Nixon, Goldwater, and, and so forth. Because I think one problem I have with some of our analyses is the focus on Trump and not Trumpism. And then I would go beyond it to say that even the term Trumpism is, is a misnomer. I think as you're kind of talking about this, some underlying things, independent of some of his boorishness is one way to talk about it right now, independent of that, there's some underlying things that's been there for, for, for decades. And when you talk about, you call it the snake sort of thing, it's not just a matter of, of restoring some democratic norms or restoring some civility. And I think that what, what may be happening is that simply when we see the results of the election, and it looks right now it'll be a Biden victory, a very, very slim one, you'll still have the core, both the, the core, both in terms of the base of roughly 45% of the electorate, but also the leadership of the GOP that want to maintain the pace they've been going on for the last couple of decades itself. So it's way beyond on Trumpism. I would want to add one more thing that somehow was lost in, in the conversation. It's the question of the global economy and globalization, or you could call it neoliberalism. So I think that you have both that being the central material basis for all this stuff, and then how people react to that, that, that material basis. The other thing I would add to is the whole question of what are the different forms of social networks and social organizations that help people process certain things. So back in the day, you could say that we had unions fairly strong that was a, a way that people could process impulses around race, impulses around globalization, impulses around inequality. And for a variety of reasons, a lot of the processing became out a bit more progressive, you might say, than it is now because of the loss of that vehicle to do so. And now we see some of the vehicles that allow people to process their fears and frustration on the right side being Fox News, being narrow silos in social media, for some of being the, the church. And that's important to add to the conversation as well because not just a matter of what this sort of rattler is saying, but it's also what allows people to process things in ways that make sense for them, though it may not make sense for us at all. Well, yeah, I think we have to unpack these one point at a time. Yeah. So one of the things, I don't look at the moment that we're in as simply the result of the global restructuring and neoliberal globalization. I start with the United States was formed as a settler colony with racial slavery. And that the, the ethos of the United States is rooted in genocide and slavery um, and annexation. Genocide, slavery, and annexation. Steve, I think if you don't start there, a lot of this does, doesn't make sense. Uh, the obsession, the U.S. obsession, uh, particularly among white people, with guns, uh, things like that don't make sense unless you really look at the history. Now, having said that, 
why that's important is that when you look throughout U.S. history, and I think that this is one of the points you're getting at, you start to see these, all of these elements, everything that we're seeing now, you see elements of them throughout U.S. history. Um, but what's happened since the 1970s with capitalist restructuring is that the American dream has evaporated for white, middle, and lower income people. And, and using that in class terms, uh, the American dream has evaporated largely for the white worker and for uh, the sort of middle strata. And they're really angry about that. And they're try they've been consistently trying to find an answer as to why it is that the lives of their children are going to be worse than their lives. And it's in that environment that this snake of right-wing populism makes its appearance. And, and so one of the things that this snake does is that it offers a narrative about why their lives are collapsing. That's where the issue of Fox News and other outlets becomes very important. Because while there's always been conspiracy theories in U.S. history, uh, while you know we had uh, groups like the John Birch Society that carried out a major campaign against the fluoridation of water and things like that, what's different is the way that people communicate now and electronic communications uh, beyond television. And so that has laid the foundation for the development of uh, what I'll call thought communities, uh, people that are of a similar vein, who in the past may have felt very isolated, but now feel that they have something in common. And this stuff gets really propped up. Now, the Republicans, the Republican establishment, for a long time basically thought that they could control this right-wing mass movement. Um, and that this right-wing mass movement could serve the objectives of neoliberal authoritarianism. And to some extent it did. But just like in the story of Frankenstein and the monster, the monster started to take on ideas of its own. And that's why in 2016, one Republican candidate for president after another was dropping because the monster really had broken loose. And now we have a political party, Republican Party, a hard right-wing party that has become Trump's party. I guess one thing I would say, Bill, with that is, is the, um, the shattering of the American dream are from happening to most workers, most working families in this country. And the question is, why do some segments veer to the right and some tend to meander and vacillate a lot and some didn't tend to veer to the, to the left? And I mentioned because I think that when we talk about trying to build a, a, a governing majority around a set of progressive values, around race, economics, and gender, and otherwise, an important question is how do you change those ways people interpret things or strengthen those ways to build a, a governing majority around progressive thoughts? And I think that just as you talked about kind of thought communities on the right, there are also thought communities on, on the left existing as well. The same processes exist. And so the question in my mind, as you try to talk about, I keep going to a governing majority, not just an electoral majority at the presidential level, is how do you actually find ways to reconstruct those thought communities, given the basis we have around race and economics and the current ways that we, these, these communities are constructed? You might say that back in the day for, for Black folks, back in back the day before we were born, actually, Bill, you talked about the Pittsburgh Courier. Chicago Defender being kind of the, the, the I guess it'd be the Fox News of, of back then. And that along with the, 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 the idea of Jim Crow, that shaped our ways to look at the world and respond to them. And so as you laid out kind of the, uh, some elements of the right wing thought community, when we talk about trying to go forward and trying to build this governing majority, how do you see us doing that? Well, it's a great question, and I think that we have to build it along several parallel tracks. So one of the things that we have to do uh, that is very difficult is that the narrative that we have to construct 
that explains why the lives of working class people have uh, nosedived is a narrative that challenges a lot of the myths of U.S. history. You know, I like to say, Steve, that in the United States, we actively oppose history and we embrace myth. And so because we oppose history, because we're in a society that opposes history, it's much easier for the right wing to construct their narrative because it more corresponds to the myth of U.S. history. We have a harder job of explaining what happened, what has happened to working class people, the racial construction of this country, the issues of patriarchy. This is much more difficult, but it's nevertheless, to me, it needs to be done. So one part of what we have to do is the construction of the narrative. And that's where progressive organizations and institutions become essential. It's not going to happen just in uh, you know, with academics. Uh, it's not going to happen with just someone writing a particular book. This is something that has to be infused into the work of our social movements, and which is why internal education and debate becomes very, very important. So that's one part of it. The second thing, Steve, is that progressive and left forces have to, uh, in line with what you were saying, understand that we are in a fight. We must be engaged in a fight for power. It's not just a fight to influence the elite. And this is one of the problems when people abandon, for example, electoral politics, and they talk about street heat and other things. While street action and other forms of activity are essential, at the end of the day, we have to demonstrate that we're fighting for power on behalf of the people that are marginalized and oppressed. And so that means building the kinds of organizations that can pursue those struggles. So it's the or building of organization, it's the building of a narrative, it's the development of strategy that starts, uh, that doesn't start at the top, but really thinks city by city, state by state, how do we build a political force? That's the task in front of us. And it also means that we have to be willing to engage in some levels of mischief um, in order to disrupt the strategies of the other side. So a level of sophistication is demanded of us. I think we can, we can rise to the occasion, but we also have to understand uh, two contradictory phenomena. One is, this is not going to happen overnight, so we have to have the longer-term view. The second, though, is that we have to have urgency, because we don't have endless amounts of time, not just because the planet faces a global uh, environmental catastrophe, but because the other side really wants to take us out. And I don't mean take us out to dinner. Yeah, you're talking about the, the need to build power and to build the organizations that can both accumulate and wield power effectively. I say sometimes that often we speak truth to power and power didn't want to listen. And so I think it's really important that we do build power. I guess one concern I have is this question of where do we do it? Because it seems to me there's been a reluctance on many avenues many elements of the left to engage those spaces where we might call is right now unfriendly terrain. And I think about the whole question of the correct view that the Electoral College is a, is a, a institution that's anti-democratic. But what's frustrates me is the railing against the Electoral College without a strategy, a political strategy, to change that. And, and unfortunately, the, the way the college is set up, that without actually building power in places where we aren't, we won't be victorious in changing the Electoral College because people in those small states will not give up power willingly. So somehow that means that our forces have to go into states, I'll call it Idaho right now, okay, where we aren't, aren't there at all, but convince people in Idaho that a better world is possible with a different direction. How do you mm -hmm. see that at all, man? Well, I, th I think that there's two aspects to the question you're posing. Um, 
One is that we have to have a strategy for winning. And believe it or not, I would argue that much of the political left in the United States doesn't really want to win um, and is in some respects apocalyptic because it basically, you know, winning a fight for power within the context of a democratic capitalist system, uh, which is, I would argue, step one to a, a fundamental transformation, is messy, Steve. It involves all kinds of alliances with people that you may not like. You may abhor them, but you need them in order to win. There's many of us on the left that are purists and, and really can't imagine engaging in those. So we have to first sweep aside this purism and understand that the fight for power is always a coalitional effort. Uh, it, is, it is never uh, one that is done in the absence of a coalition. Um, so so there's, there's the, the fight for power, uh, but there's also the need to build a movement for one person, one vote that explicitly takes on the electoral college. And there's a number of things that some states are experimenting with already, you know, such as uh, electoral votes are um, decided upon based on the proportion of uh, the electorate that votes one way or another, which is far more democratic than what we have. But I think that we have to win people to understand is that the electoral college in effect, means that millions of votes are irrelevant. You know, I think about in 2012, uh, talking to, uh, in the aftermath of the 2012 election, talking to a friend of mine in South Carolina who pointed out that the Obama campaign had put nothing into South Carolina. They'd given up on South Carolina. Obama got 40% of the vote. Now, that's really significant. The problem is it's irrelevant from the standpoint of electoral politics because it was winner take all. So the 40% of the people that voted for Obama, their vote didn't end up counting. One person, one vote says that every vote counts, whether you're in Rhode Island or California, whether you're in Texas or Maine, every vote counts. Therefore, you end up having a national election, a truly national election. And you don't have this idiocy of so-called battleground states where we're sitting here at the edge of our seats waiting to find out what's the final verdict on Arizona or Pennsylvania. You look at what the voters decided upon in that election. So, Bill, I think people can be convinced. So I'm not sure they can be without the hard work in the Idahos. Because I think that we have basically two tribes that are at war. And any sort of attempt toward one person, one vote reduces the power of folk in Idaho. That's how, that's how they're going to perceive it. Or, the, or the, the power of people in those small states. So somehow you need to get an electoral majority in those small states to agree with one person, one vote. I think sometimes in our correct combination of the electoral ecology, we don't begin to unfold a political strategy to win those, some of those states over. And we don't need well, every look, state. We just need two-thirds of the states, or three-quarters. Right. And I mean, look, you, you're right. Every, I mean, work has to be done in Idaho. That's true. I don't disagree with that. Um, and, and it may be that the work that's done uh, happens in stages. So that what you do is you get people in Idaho, Iowa, Wyoming, or whatever, to agree that electoral votes need to be allocated based on a proportion of victory, right? I mean, that's a very basic step and it's a step that a number of states have already taken. So I think that something like that can be pursued. Um, I, I, I think that the, um, the problem that we face is more with the elites, the political elites who look at this approach as threatening uh, their sphere. And that's that's a very real thing. But I think at the at the level of regular people, 
to make the argument that every vote should count and that at a minimum we allocate electoral votes on a basis of the proportion of the election is something that will resonate. So, Bill, we could have a daily talk show, by the way, to go through all these issues. Um, I would actually enjoy it, by the way. Um, but given we have constrained time, I want to shift gears a bit and focus a bit on black workers and, and, and raise the question of the, the broad question of building black worker power. And have, I want you to pose a question to you that that's important, I think, to discuss and untie and, and, and so forth. Is why do you think it's important to focus on black workers? And I'm just opposing that phrase against the community or the poor or the masses. Because you and I have been around and we've been friends since, God, 48 years, dude. Damn, it's a long time, right? I know. I and know. You know, back in the day, we talked about the masses or the poor. And in some ways, we use terms interchangeably. And when we thought of the label of this podcast, Black Work Talk, it was to elevate the idea of black workers. So why do you think it's important to explicitly name black workers and not just maintain a broader term, the masses, the community, the poor, and so forth? Well, there's several reasons. Um, so, I mean, I can say as a Marxist, uh, workers are the ones that create the wealth, right? But that's not enough of an answer. Uh, for me, I guess, I guess in some ways, that, and I answer that question by explaining why I got into the trade union movement. Um, and so I was radicalized, as you know, by the Black Panther Party, by reading Malcolm X, et cetera, all of those things. Um, but while we were in college, one of the things that I came to appreciate was the centrality of the Black worker in our communities, as well as the centrality of the Black worker in the, in the larger trade union movement, in the history of the trade union movement. And, um, and that the, one of the problems in African-American history and politics is that the black worker is regularly ignored um, and that the focus is on the elite in the community, the ministers, the, uh, the lawyers, the doctors, the entertainers, and that the people who are the bulk of the community, who keep the community going, who are the bulk of the mass movements, are all too often uh, marginalized. So the Black worker does not have a real voice in the Black community. Uh, the Black worker, you know, even, and, and here's the irony, Steve, even many black workers end up worshiping the black elite. So I think, for instance, about Bob Johnson, who I like to pick on, the founder of Black Entertainment Television, and then he sold his interest to Viacom and is uh, incredibly wealthy. Um, you know, when Bob Johnson was building BET, his supporters were basically trying to make the argument that we needed to build this black capitalist institution and that this was going to have a uh, ripple effect on the rest of the community. And he got a lot of support. When his workers chose to unionize, he fought them. And ironically, there were many people, including many black trade unionists, who refused to come to support the black workers at BET that were fighting for their rights? Um, we we end up and we end up all too often often excuse me um, worshiping the elite. And and so one issue I would say is that we need to build a voice for black workers as black workers. And I think that that's part of what you've tried to do with the Black Worker Center Project, that Black workers need a voice. They need a voice also in the trade union movement. And we have organizations like the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, of course, uh, the A. Philip Randolph Institute, a number of uh, uh, caucuses. Uh, 
But what has happened over time is that many of these institutions have become more and more, what's a good term? Um, uh, they have become more and more comfortable with the status quo and a little bit uncomfortable with pushing the limits. And, and so this is one of the reasons I think that something like the National Black Worker Center Project becomes very important, why we periodically need to revitalize the leaderships of many of our organizations, and not just Black labor organizations. But you can get a sense, this, this complacency that develops when leaders get used to a certain way of operating. And the Black worker needs that militant voice. Now, when I hear you talk, Bill, I, 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 what I think about is, well, two quick, one quick thing, one longer thing. One, and you raised the example of Bob Johnson, BT, and his workers and the whole battle around worker, black worker rights. I think back to recently I unearthed a op-ed that Maya Angelou wrote during the times of the Clarence Thomas confirmation. How basically Maya Angelou was supporting Clarence Thomas. And when I think of that example and, and your example, it, to me it's important to, to have a different sort of racial lens, for lack of a better term, that looks at the interplay of, of race and capitalism. Because it seems to me that we tend not to do that. We tend to have race stand aside from political economy. And I think doing that, it, it, one, it reinforces the dominant narrative that the political economy is sacrosanct, not to be changed by the masses in particular. And second, it, it puts forth an illusion that fundamentally just sort of integrating the status quo is is the best we can hope for in terms of racial justice. And I just think that'd be important for us to find a way to talk about Black concerns in a way that talked about race and capitalism, capitalism itself. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's interesting, Steve. I've been thinking about these election results um, and the alleged increase in Black males by a few percentage points supporting Trump, which I don't trust, by the way, uh, because of how many, how large the proportion of mail-in voters there were, so who obviously can't do an exit poll. But let's leave that aside for a second. Um, the One of the things that I have encountered anecdotally are Black men who were disappointed in the Obama years and felt that they didn't get enough out of the Obama years. Now, leaving aside that, you know, the idea of sitting back and waiting for any political figure to deliver is magical thinking. What it speaks to is related to what you were just saying about Maya Angelou, um, with all due respect, which is that there's a failure for, on the part of many people to do what is, in effect, a class and political analysis of the different organizations and political leaders in our community. If someone understood who Obama was prior to his election, um, it wasn't that he was an evil man at all. He just was never a radical. He was not a radical. And there was his approach towards politics almost guaranteed the problems that we encountered beginning in 2009. It was that failure. It was a sort of uh, magical thinking about him. And the more extreme, which was what you were saying about Clarence Thomas, is tragic. The view that too many people had that once Clarence Thomas was appointed, that he would have some sort of miraculous epiphany and, and would do the right thing. And the man has not done the right thing since he was appointed and there's no indication that he ever will. And, and so that is exactly why the point you're raising is so, so important and why we need the voice of the Black worker. And in some ways, it's important. I mean, I know I raised the issue of Clarence Thomas, but because he's so extreme, some ways he, he is an example thwarts the attempt to go beyond race and bring it into a complicated economy. 
because people say that Clarence is the exception. Most folk would do the right thing. And I think the issue is really relating most folk with their position in, in the political economy and the interest and the power to change certain things. If we talk about trying to, to bring in political economy into the analysis and into the practice of Black freedom, how do you see that unfolding? Um, well, one of the big challenges that we have, Steve, is that uh, most people don't, uh, don't understand economics. And, uh, and I'm not, that's not a condescending statement at all. It's to say that economics is treated all too often as if it is something that only Merlin the magician would understand or someone that has a doctorate. And so part of what we have to do, was, which is what you know that we were doing back in the 90s um, when I was at the AFL-CIO, was uh, the Common Sense Economics uh, Project, which was aimed at speaking with, with, I underline, with workers about capitalism, about their experiences, and about how the system actually works. I think that that's what's central, Steve, that, um, that like, for example, uh, the, the Trumpsters who believed that Trump was really masterful as a businessman and as uh, in terms of the economy uh, were not watching what was happening to the economy in the lead up to the pandemic. I'm not talking about the collapse after the pandemic, but what was happening in, in, the, uh, uh, in the lead up to it. And, and that the, the, the signs were there that we were getting ready to go into some sort of downturn. Re- most regular people are not going to see that, Steve. What they, what they were watching was Trump taking advantage of an economic lift that had started in the Obama years in the aftermath of the Great Recession. So speaking with people about how does the economy function makes it important and it makes it helpful and essential actually in developing strategy. Um, what does, you know, uh, what, how can economic development in the 21st century really happen? Does it have to rely on gambling and setting up sports stadiums? I mean, how does one go about economic development? And I think that because it's, uh, economics has been mystified, uh, a lot of people just simply shut down, or they listen to the the cert the what would we call the talking points of whoever the political figures are that they feel closest to. So I start there, and I I am furious that the AFL CIO and most of its affiliates abandoned common sense economics back in the nineties. And then eventually they, uh, they came to understand that that was a mistake. But the version that they, then they, they started a new one, but the version that they started is not deep enough. Workers are not stupid. They may have varying reading levels or whatever, but they're not stupid. Don't treat them like they're idiots. Engage people in a discussion. Draw out from them their experiences introduce new information and new knowledge, help to develop a framework. And I think that that's the essential, that's the a, that's a direction we got to go. I think it's that, what you said, is, is really important. And also it's organizing around the new vision as well. And I think about a couple issues that's pop up around Black issues, quote unquote. And one is around the question of housing, and second around the issue of, of marijuana legalization. And... It was fascinating. We had one of our, our, our class out here in the Bay. And one sister is very deeply engaged in the issues of organizing the former incarcerated. She herself is former incarcerated. And she was saying that for all of the discussion around how can Black folks get part of the action when you legalize marijuana, what hurts her people that they can't pass drug tests. So to me, that's an example of class divergences and orientation that when you focus on kind of the elite or exist, the existing political economy, you focus on entrepreneurship. When we talk about the actual problems facing regular folk, workers, you, you, you approach the issue a bit differently. Another issue, the question of, of housing. That what happens oftentimes in the dominant way we look at housing issues, 
re-examine the racial gap in homeownership, and we try to find ways to increase the, the rate of black homeownership. Well, what we've talked about is the question of simply people who are renting units who face escalating rental prices, who are evicted, and the whole question of do you want to maintain the dominant way we provide housing through the private market? You might have heard out here in Oakland, a very important campaign was organized around the theme of Moms for Housing, where some black women um, were squatting in empty houses, and they were try- they were, they- their attempt was to evict them. A big campaign was raised to stop it from happening. It was successful in many ways. It's more complicated. And the important thing is one of the leaders of that battle, she's down city council here in Oakland. So just think that's important to always look at issues and ask yourself from what perspective you're looking at this, this issue. Is it from the perspective of the majority of black folks, black workers, or is it from the, the dominant lens, which lend, lend itself towards the perspective of the, of the elite? I, yeah, I couldn't put it better. And, and I think that that's a challenge even within the black section of the working class. In other words, that people are trained to think in terms of and within the framework of the dominant classes and and to downplay their own knowledge, to downplay their own experiences. And and so um, I think that you're absolutely right. And so this needs, this is like a very serious reorientation. And it's scary for many people because you're challenging the hierarchy uh, within which we have been operating since we were born. So, Bill, we could talk forever. Um, we haven't told any tales of the good old days about how I taught yeah. you how to drive a stick shift. There you those go. Those sort of things, right? How, um, yeah. That may be for another episode. But I do want to close on a couple of questions. Um, yeah. That, that, that song that Gary Bartz put out called Music in My Sanctuary. I think for me, for me, music is so important. And I want to kind of help us build a new soundtrack for liberation. And so I always want to ask my guests, what song kind of drives you right now and why? Well, it's not a song. It's a tune. Uh, Giant Steps by John Coltrane. Um, years ago, that became, almost by accident, my theme song. Uh, I, I started using it with, in the radio show I was doing on the Pacifica affiliate uh, in D.C., WPFW, uh, for, we went, what, six years, and I used it. And then let me tell you this funny story, Steve. So it, one day, so I have a granddaughter, as you know, and um, she was about a little bit more than a year. And she was uh, here and she was acting up. And she's a wonderful kid, but she was acting up. And I was trying to figure out a way to calm her down. For reasons that I don't understand, I put on giant steps. And she became transfixed. And I'm not exaggerating, transfixed. And every time giant steps comes on to this day, she gets into it and starts humming it. So, and she also is into other jazz, like Wayne Shorter, believe it or not. Um, so it's, that's my music, man. I'm glad you're raising granddaughter right, dude, which I will oh, die. Absolutely. Um, um, next is, is Love Supreme, by the way, but we'll get there, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but, but Bill, what are you reading also? So I'm reading several different things. Um, I'm reading uh, Samir Amin's last book, Modern Imperialism, Monopoly, Finance, Capital, and Marx's Law of Value. Um, I'm also, I just finished Richard Rothstein's incredible book, Color of Law, about segregation, which... I, I just, I mean, everybody's got to read this book and there need to be study groups um, because, I mean, he blows away these myths. Um, and then I'm reading the uh, the last of the, the, uh, the most recent of the Elizabeth Solander books, uh, the mysteries uh, the um, that started with the, the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I'm drawing a blank on the name. But let me put one more thing in, Steve. And then I completed a few months ago the manuscript for the sequel to my first novel. Um, and the first novel, as you know, was The Man Who Fell From the Sky, 
and I completed the sequel to that. And now I'm looking towards uh, getting it published. Um, no, Bill, we have a policy. We have some promotions. You've got to pay for it, by the way. <laughs> and so I will send you an invoice. If not, we'll simply delete it from the, from the tape. Who knows? Yeah, well, you, you, you can do that. And I hope <laughs> when the book comes out, you'll have me back on so we can talk about it. Because you'll, you'll love it, Steve. It Sounds starts good, in man. 1978 in, in a shipyard in Massachusetts. Sounds great, man. Sounds great. Bill, thanks a lot for being here, man. I, I, as you know, you're my friend for life. Um, as I say, Always. jokingly, all the bad things are your fault that I do. The good things are mine, but in reality, it's the opposite. So thanks for being with me, man. Thanks for being on the show, the first show, okay? A pleasure. Absolutely. And good luck with the uh, um, forthcoming shows. Thank you, man. Be well, okay? Okay. Bye-bye. Take bye. care. That was my conversation with Bill Fletcher. We could have talked for hours going much, much deeper into these issues of building a governing majority, organizing black workers, and the role of political education in these tasks. I look forward to having Bill back on the show. We spoke on Thursday, November 5th. Today is Saturday the 7th, and the networks have called the election for Biden. I have been playing every version I could find of Everybody Rejoice, It's a Brand New Day from The Wiz. My phone has been blowing up the calls and texts sharing videos of celebration and memes of joy. We celebrate today, but when you hear this episode, we will be back at work, doing the work, building our power to achieve what Dr. King and others called the beloved community. I hope Black Work Talk will be a part of this movement. Our next guest will be Doreen Warren of Community Change Action. In future episodes, we will have prison abolitionist Ruthie Gilmore, Bianca Cunningham of the Democratic Socialist of America, and Tanya Walls-Goburn of the National Black Worker Center, among others. So please support Black Work Talk. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon and become sustainers. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well. <laughs>